It's been a hard week in our world. The war in Israel and Palestine has escalated to absolutely devastating proportions. The people of Maine have suffered and are suffering a terrifying and tragic act of violence. When I went to look at the top three news stories, I also discovered that the third story of the week is that Arkansas has the largest number of food insecure people in the nation. The suffering of humanity is real. And so maybe you, like me, have come here looking for some comfort in God's presence in the midst of our reality. There is some comfort in several of our readings this morning. We have the Israelites finally on the edge of the promised land. It took us about 10 weeks. It took them 40 years. (laughs) We have the psalmist singing praise to God. Lord, you have been our refuge from one generation to another. And there is Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he encourages and empowers their faith, loving them and caring for them in a genuine and authentic way. Wouldn't it be something for us in our cathedral if we had someone like Paul who cared for us in our churches? There is some comfort in placing our faith, our suffering, our joy within the context of all of our faithful ancestors. And we do this week stand at the great tridium, if you will, of all hallows, all saints, and all souls. And so today is also Reformation Sunday. Now I know we are Episcopalians, not Lutherans, but I grew up Lutheran, and my grandfather would be quite pleased to know that I am marking the Reformation Sunday for us. It's supposed that on October 31st, 1517, 1517, that Martha Luther, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to a door. And he was not confused about trick-or-treating. He did hope, I think, that someone might notice his scholarly objections to practices in the Catholic Church. He, of course, saw them as scholarly objections, but he hoped that, quote, the poor believers might notice these oppressive practices. I don't imagine that Luther thought he was going to reform the church or that even anyone would think about him over 500 years later. I do think he hoped people would notice. I do think his hope was in his love of God and for his neighbor. So in today's gospel, we find Jesus in the temple. He's still telling stories. He's still answering hard questions. The Pharisees have left to come up with a plan to entrap him, and now they're back. The Herodians and Sadducees have tried to catch him in some kind of blasphemy. They've failed miserably. They've asked him about taxes, which is a bit of a tricky question because a Roman coin in the temple would be blasphemous no matter who had it in their pocket. No one should be carrying one. And so no worries, Jesus handles that question very well. 
Then the Sadducees lean in with a question about the resurrection. It is an absolutely absurd question, the story about a woman who would have married all seven brothers of one family. I ask you, what woman do you know would marry all seven brothers of the same family? Unless it was quite a family. I digress. But you get the point. By now, none of us are concerned that anyone is going to answer, ask Jesus a question that he cannot answer. He's ready for all the sabotage that they're going to bring his way. We might, though, wonder what any of these questions or Jesus' answers have to do with any of us. So the Pharisees are back today. Now remember, their goal is to trap Jesus, to find a reason to arrest him. And wouldn't it be great if he were to commit blasphemy? It would make their jobs so much easier. And so they goad him to break Torah law. Are they asking him to choose from one of the Ten Commandments? Or maybe they're asking him to interpret the Ten Commandments. Or maybe, maybe they really are curious about which of the 700 Levitical laws is the best, the greatest, the one with the most authority. And we might wonder if Jesus' answer would have any authority for them or for us. I mean, what's the point of even asking the question? Because how does the question itself test Jesus. I don't think that it does, honestly. Instead, I think that these questions are really just a great setup, a setup for Jesus in the gospel to turn the tables and to confront the authorities of the temple. But again, to be honest, I'm not really interested in that conflict the one between Jesus and the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians, or frankly, the conflict he has with anyone else. For me, standing right here today in this moment, I want to know what it means to love God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind. I want us to wonder together What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? I want to come close to Jesus, and I want to love as Jesus commands. Now, the Gospels, our faith, tells us that Jesus is the physical embodiment of divine love. Everything about him is about God's love for creation. His life reveals this love in all that he says and all that he does. The call to follow him is to follow in this divine love. So how then do we understand divine love and the commandment to love? So I went back and I looked at all the Gospel of Matthew this week. There's a lot. And it's easy in a season to lose sight of the many threads and themes of the gospel. But here's what I found in summary. It is this, that in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is doing one of two things. He's either teaching the crowd or he is acting on their behalf. So consider the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's gospel. Here, Jesus calls the crowd up onto the mountain. He sits down and begins to teach them. You know this, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. When he comes to the end of that very long 
discourse where he teaches them about what it means to be the people of God, he then begins to heal all the sick and the suffering, even the dying. This is that moment in the gospel where he stills a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the rest of the gospel continues, if you will, on this consistent revolution. Jesus sits down, gives a long sermon, offers a long discourse of teaching of what it means to believe and practice faith in God. He tells them parables about the kingdom of God. And then he does things. He acts on their behalf. He feeds them, numbering in the 5,000 and the 4,000. And if you read all these teachings, we find this variety of expressions of divine love, stories that invite us to wonder, can divine love grow even amidst all the thorns? Is divine love like an unexpected treasure in a field or three measures of yeast and flour? All of these are images of God's faithfulness and abundant, unexpected mercy. And then the parables, for example, they become real in what Jesus does. He heals the Canaanite woman's daughter. The mute begin to speak. The maimed are made whole. Jesus' life embodies the law, and it reveals God's redemptive and healing activity in creation. The commandments to love God and our neighbor demand that we follow this kind of love. Love that redeems. Love that redeems seeks God's presence even in places where we imagine it will never grow. And this includes, but is not limited to, turning the other cheek and praying for our persecutors. Love that heals. Love that heals relieves suffering in every circumstance. And this includes, but is not limited to, feeding the hungry and showing mercy. To love God with our whole lives, we must let God love us. And to love our neighbors as ourselves, we must discover God's redemptive activity in our lives. We must know Christ in us, and we must make him known with us. Indeed, it has been a hard week in our world. And we have so many reasons to be divided from one another. We're hurt, we're suffering, we're hungry, we are in need, and we can fill every moment of our lives with distraction and busyness. We can avoid love at all costs. It has also been a very good week. Throughout the week, colleagues and friends and families have connected with one another. Someone was forgiven this week, and someone forgave them. Someone fed someone who was very hungry, and someone who was hungry got something to eat. 
someone has lived with intention and found some quiet moments of reflection. Someone gave blood, and some have built gardens. We love one another. And our love for our neighbors may not end a war or solve food insecurity or end gun violence. But our love of God compels us to at least try. Now, forgive me for a moment. I rarely do this. But last night as I was tying up this sermon, yes, it was last night. I'm not alone in that. I came across an image from Friday's workday in the garden, just across the street. It was an image of three people standing in absolute pouring down rain, working so hard to build a garden in a place that only holds possibility of a garden. And what I mean to say is that the volunteers who gathered here on Friday built beds for seeds that don't even exist yet, plants that have not even grown. And they built these beds on asphalt and hard, compacted dirt that was never meant to grow anything except for maybe a house. It's going to take a lot of work for anything to grow on that lot. And there are a lot of questions about its care and its use. And there are so many reasons not to do it. And yet the people who gathered on that lot believed it's at least worth trying. And for me, that image is a living image of the parable of the sower who casts seed wherever it may land, or the Sermon on the Mount that seeks to bless us even amidst our greatest suffering. For me, it is discovering that the kingdom of God is very close to us. Jesus invites us, compels us, commands us to follow him, to join God's redemptive activity, divine love, wherever we find it, right here and out there, at all times and in all places. And so may we continue to have the courage and the strength to try.